Welcome to For the Love of Brantford, a podcast about the evolving story of our community. This podcast is for everyone who holds a place in their heart for our beautiful city. I'm Nathan Etherington, the Program and Community Coordinator for the Brant Historical Society. I'll be sharing some information from the Brant Historical Society archives and other sources to share some history that you may not have learned in school. And I'm Andy Samwell, president of the Eagle Place Community Association, and I'm passionate about community. And for me, you'll hear about what's happening in our community now. And I'm Zila Ozels from the Brantford Public Library. I'll be speaking with experts to get an idea of where our community is going. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, fill in our feedback form on the podcast website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. We hope you join us each episode as we learn from each other and explore Brantford's past, present, and future. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1, For the Love of Brantford, where we explore the evolving story of our community. We're so excited to be back with a new line of topics for this season. Each episode will cover a different topic and its story in Brantford through the past, present, and future. For our first episode, this episode, we'll highlight the activities of various education institutions in Brantford. First, we start off with some of the first schools in the area, such as the Brantford Young Ladies College, Ontario Institution for the Education of the Blind, now known as W. Ross MacDonald School, and Victoria School. Then I speak with Barb Walsworth, past president of the Shellard Neighborhood Association, and their involvement in the upcoming Southwest Community Centre that will be connected to a public school. And a new library branch. Finally, I speak with Rebecca Jamison, president and CEO of Six Nations Polytechnic, about their unique STEAM Academy program and how they prepare students for the future. In all of these stories, you'll notice a common thread of how important education and access to it is to a community. Providing education and community resources doesn't just stop with the building. There are so many people that are involved. Throughout the episode, we see the community coming together to advocate for and plan new buildings and teachers working hard to provide effective and innovative learning opportunities. While we only touch on a little bit of what education looks like in Brantford, you'll notice changes over the years from student to teacher ratios and various styles of teaching. Before we get started, we also wanted to mention that we left out one particular school on purpose. During the past segment, we do not discuss the Mohawk Institute. History and information about the Mohawk Institute will be discussed in a future episode about what truth and reconciliation looks like in Brantford. If you have comments or questions about anything you hear or suggestions for topics we should cover in future seasons, don't hesitate to reach us through our podcast website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. And now onto the past segment of education in Brantford. I started school in the 1980s here in Brantford, but what was education like early in Brantford? Believe it or not, the first school in the area was not actually in Brantford. In 1817, there were only two schools listed in Burford and Oakland townships. The first school in Brantford was operating around 
1826 on the Market Square in the community's only public building, which was the town hall, courtroom, and meeting house on top of being the school. By 1850, the first common school was erected on George Street, now the site of Central School, and this is pictured on the 1852 Marcus Smith map of the town of Brantford. The first high school was a frame cottage or wood structure on Nelson Street, taught by Mr. Tyner from 1853 to 1855. The grammar and common school were joined in 1857 out of this one building. Common schools are what we would call elementary schools, and grammar schools are more similar to a junior high or high school today. A map of Brantford in 1869 shows the location of the Darling Street School at the location of Charlie Ward Park. The building at the corner of Peel and Darling Street is pictured on the 1875 map as a small two-story structure. What was the ratio of students to teachers, and how well were they funded? In 1852, it notes that there were three schools with six teachers and 785 students, or 130 students per teacher. By 1882, there were four, quote, superior brick buildings with 29 teachers and 2,038 pupils, or 70 students per teacher. Attendance was 41% in the early days, and it increased to 69% by 1882. In 1852, salaries were $1,860, and by 1882, had increased to $9,028. This sounds like a substantial increase, but per teacher is roughly the same. The annual budget in 1882 was about $15,000. The schools continued to grow, with five public schools, 2,115 students, and some 40-odd teachers in the elementary system, and 215 students and eight teachers at the Collegiate Institute in 1899. By 1927, this had increased to 11 public schools, 4,300 pupils, and 117 teachers for the elementary, and 1,028 pupils and 30 teachers at BCI. What other types of educational institutions were in early Brantford? Well, before BCI was built as the high school in 1910, the site was used as the home of the Brantford Young Ladies College. This institution was incorporated in September 1874 with a capital of $60,000. The first meeting was held in the city council chamber on March 24, 1874, and was initiated by Dr. William Cochrane. Cochrane was associated with the Presbyterian Church and later owned, lived, and died in the museum building on Charlotte Street. And he took an active role in the management of the Young Ladies College, attracting ladies from Nova Scotia to British Columbia and even the United States. The building was previously the residence of the Honorable E.B. Wood or Big Thunder. And an expansion of $50,000 was added to allow a residence of 80 boarders to live on site throughout the school year. The Institute was also attended by Sarah Jeanette Duncan and Pauline Johnson, two of Brantford's notable uh, authors. I've never actually been there, but I've heard about the W. Ross McDonald School for the Blind in town. How has it decided to construct the school here in Brantford? After Confederation, the ability for the government to collect taxes was easier and the province was headed towards considerable government surpluses. With this additional windfall, 
the government looked to alleviate the human suffering and the amelioration of the private and municipal burdens by the erections of institutions for the education of the blind and the deaf and dumb population at the expense of the public treasury. $75,000 was allocated in December 1869 for this institute. The treasurer at the time was none other than E.B. Wood, who was both a member of federal and provincial parliament. He could do both of those things at the time. And on top of that, he was a former chief justice of the province of Manitoba. It was quite apparent that most people wanted the Institute for the Blind to be located elsewhere in the province. But E.B. Wood was firm and insistent that the land would be acquired in his riding of Brantford. So how big were the original grounds? And why did they need so much space? Well, 65 and a quarter acres, known as the Digby Farm, was purchased where it was, quote, a treeless waste and outside of the town limits of Brantford. The chief engineer's house, originally the gatekeeper's house, was built in 1871 as the first building on the site and controlled access for the future buildings. The main building was 300 feet long with a rear extension of 250 feet in length with the principal and bursar's cottage located to the east. To the west, there were the willow workshop and the farm buildings and over half of the land was farmed to provide food for the school. A spring on the grounds with a powerful engine pump gave an inexhaustible supply of the purest water. It was noted at the time that students needed ample space for their exercise and recreation. There were broad plank walkways on the grounds that were 10 feet wide on either side of the main driveway. The main building also had a wide, well-ventilated corridors warm dormitories, and a large music hall with a full pipe organ. That sounds pretty impressive. I wish I had gone to that school. Uh, So how many students were there and what kind of teachers and classes did they have? When the institute opened in May 1872, there were only seven pupils. In 1882, provincial reports note an attendance of 77 males and 64 females. In 1881, the report notes 168 males and 140 females were admitted to the Institute with 77 having been born blind, 62 in their first year and 157 in the ages between one and 20. In 1880, it lists the staff as the principal, bursar, five teachers in the literary department, five in music, two instructresses, two assistants in the machine, hand sewing and knitting, respectively, a matron, two nurses, 13 domestic servants, an engineer, two assistant engineers, carpenter, baker, gardener, two farmhands, and Dr. Marquis as a physician attending daily. In 1882, it notes 77 pupils in vocal and musical instruments, 31 in knitting, 41 in sewing and needlework, and 30 students in the willow works. The trade was instructed by Mr. Thomas Truss, and students produced wicker baskets and chairs, selling for $80 to $100, with a few young men in different parts of the province earning an excellent livelihood, having training and encouragement from the blind school in Brantford. Can you tell us about another early school site in town? Well, I recently conducted some research about Victoria's school. 
I recall people telling me the school was here very early and they built an addition on and changed the name from Northward to Victoria School. However, in my research, I discovered there was an earlier school on a different part of the site along Albion Street. Brantford City Council actually purchased this lot and constructed a school there in 1853 with an addition on the rear later on. As with many schools of this period, they were overcrowded and the Board of Education, as it was at the time, endeavored to build this new school for the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria in 1897. A report in the Exposter on June 16, 1897, tells about the first sod being turned on the site of the new Albion Street School. The old buildings have, of course, completely disappeared. Nothing remains but the holes which once contained their foundations. It mentions white limestone being unloaded for the foundation work to begin. The cornerstone was laid by William Gibson in July 1897. The principal when the school opened was Miss Mary Coulter. She retired in December 1917 and was presented with a framed testimonial for her years of service with a watercolor sketch of Victoria School by David G. Husband of Brantford, which was donated to the museum in 1948. Hi, Barb. Welcome. Could you introduce yourself for the folks listening at home? Hi, Mandy. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm Barb Walsworth. And I have been involved with the Shellard Neighborhood Association ever since the very beginning, which was back in January of 2003. So we're actually gonna be 20 years old this coming January. Um, I am now one of the past presidents um, of the association and I just stepped down from the chair position in May when we had our AGM as there was other things that I wanted to to work on in my life but I chaired it on and off through most of those 20 years and uh, a lot of things that have happened in the community have been near and dear to my heart and um, I still keep on top of it as much as I can I volunteer with them if they need somebody and if they got questions sometimes they come and ask me Barb what the heck were you doing <laughs> what's going on <laughs> So something I wanted to talk to you about is how the Shellard Neighborhood Association was involved in working towards the Southwest Community Centre. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Believe it or not, we actually started to talk with the city in 2006 and 7 with regard to a community centre and the fact that we had no place to call home. Um, eventually, um, through talks with the city over quite a few years, it was finally um, put forth in 2010 and 11 that we would go through with this. And the original name for it was the North of Shellard Sports Complex and Community Center. And it wasn't changed until about 2017. So it has been something that has been ongoing for quite a number of years. We needed some place out here for the residents to call home where they could go and meet, participate in some activities, uh, sports activities, family activities, teens, seniors, young families. It was desperately needed because there was nothing else in this area for them where they could go as a community. Uh, there was no like 
churches or clubs and or any place like that that we could say hey could you know if you've got a room there that we can borrow to have a meeting it was all brand new development and this area is still expanding and if some of you have never have not been out here in a while i suggest you take a ride down shullard's lane and explore some of the areas off of shullard i was gonna um ask you so the neighborhood association kind of advocated then for that very much so. And then once they realized that, they realized that the, the residents need to be involved. We needed to get some of the sports clubs on board. So we worked with the sports council on this. We also worked with other sports groups that were interested in it. At that particular time, when we first started to talk about it, we didn't really talk about the library as such. Um, so that kind of came in a little bit later, 2010, 12, somewhere in there. Yeah, you're definitely one of the areas that do doesn't have a community center or anything like that, where no. most neighborhoods yeah. have a community center fairly close. My goodness, interesting so, things happen. But the nice thing about is that now you guys are going to have this this additional school and community center yeah. and a library, and a library and a childcare facility along with that. So the four things are going in, and then originally when they had talked about the school. It was, also, it was originally going to be a high school, but then when they chatted with the school board back in about 2017, the mandate had kind of changed and they realized that they really did need an elementary school. That sounds really great. Um, yeah. so, I mean, now that it's finally moving along and coming along, um, what do you think this will mean for the community? I have little dreams about it. You know, seeing families coming in the front door and saying, okay, you know, one's going off to maybe do a little bit of gymnastics here and another one's going to go in and uh, play, do some soccer and some teens are going down to the teen room and the seniors are over there playing cards and the outdoor activities that are going to be there. And also the intermingling with the library too, I think is really important. And we'll be able to to join up with them and have joint events happening. And people just wandering over, like there's always mothers out with new, with the, the babies and the strollers and going over there. I just think it's going to bring families and communities together and especially the different ethnicities and to see what a vibrant community we're going to have out here. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Listening to you talk about it, I can kind of envision that too. Um, a place of gathering and a place of yes. life learning and, and for, you know, the community to come together. So if somebody wanted to get involved with the Shellards, Shellards Lane Neighborhood Association, how would they do that? We have a Facebook page, just Shellard NA. And uh, you can go on to Facebook and Dia will probably, our chair this year, will probably respond to you and We'd love to have you come out, listen to our meetings. We're hoping to have them, real live people get together in the fall. Can you please introduce yourself? Hello, um, my name is Rebecca Jamison and I serve as the president and CEO at Six Nations Polytechnic. I'm a member of Six Nations, the Grand River and I'm a Tuscora. Um, I lived, have lived here most of my life and worked in education for most of my life as well in communities. So give you an idea of who I am. Can you tell us about the STEAM Academy at SNP and why it's described as a new model of education? 
Well, the STEAM Academy um, at SMP is, um, it basically started out as an initiative to provide opportunities for our students at the high school level to learn and get their high school diploma in a culturally supportive environment, one that is very focused and, and based on our culture, our values and our language and um, built a relationship with um, IBM. And IBM started a school in the States called P-TECH. And it had a model where you took high school and you took um, post-secondary education at the same time. So we had a conversation about that. And then we decided here at uh, Six Nations Polytechnic that we would start the program, but do it in our own way so that we made sure that we have our culture, our language and our values embedded in the programming, but still have that aspect around the technology, the STEM areas. We added the A for arts because we see art as its own its own form of science and, and its own form of looking at the world. Yeah, we started the program, um, as I said, to create opportunities for our learners to have more success at the secondary school level. So your original question was, why is it a new model of education? Well, it's for several reasons. It's number one, it's a high school college combined program. It's education based on indigenous worldview, um, culture values, and, and so on and language. We also welcome non-Indigenous students with us because we want to build relationships with, with those that we share the land with. So it's proving to be quite successful, actually. How does the program embed Indigenous culture and values? And you were also saying the language and worldview. It's done in many different ways. You know, the, the culture, the values and the language is embedded in many different ways. If you go to the if you go to the campus now, you're going to see posters of the values everywhere. They're also those values are integrated into how we interact with the students, how we try to model that uh, human dynamic with students, so that they will do that with each other. And it, we intentionally focus on on how that behavior is guided by the values. Uh, students demonstrating particular values are acknowledged by the school, like they actually have a process that they go through that. In terms of Indigenous knowledge, there's always a layer of, you know, what is the Indigenous knowledge related to knowledge that we might know in Western worlds? So we try to parallel it and match it. So there's an understanding that there's more than one knowledge system. And this fall, we're doing something quite unique. The grade nines coming in are going to have what we call like an integrated program in the fall semester. They're not going to be taking four distinct courses. They'll be taking integrated learning. So they will get four credits, but it'll be done based on um, an interdisciplinary approach, I guess you would say. We're doing this for a number of reasons. Number one, this approach to learning, this pedagogical approach to learning is very is very um, aligned with our worldview and how we see the world and how you would approach learning anyway. Why do you learn? It's you learn to be able to do something, to be able to, you know, achieve something in real life. So we think that this will be an excellent transition for the grade nines, especially after the COVID years, you know, learning online. And, and we know that students were not always well engaged online. And in our community, we're also challenged by connectivity issues. It's kind of, in a way, it's kind of like being in a grade eight homeroom. You know what I mean? With a teacher who teaches all the subjects, but the learning experience will be around a subject matter. It'll be around an experience. And from that experience will be 
the language skills will be learned. And so, you know, the art will be applied and so on. And it will all be tracked for learning outcomes. So as well as the Indigenous knowledge learning outcomes, we're really excited for it. And uh, yeah, so we think even that's going to be a, a new dimension to the new model of education. So much of what you said just makes so much more sense for when you think about like what happens after school. And that's kind of like brings me to my next question is, for what kind of future is the STEAM Academy preparing your students for? Well, I guess in the in the formal sense, you know, I mean, we, we do we do what we call pathways. We develop pathways for students. So initially we developed a pathway into the computer science area, you know, the Internet of All Things and preparing them to work in that area. You know, they're actually we actually have some interns with IBM now who have graduated from STEAM. But the other pathways that we're looking at in the technology area. Our students are keenly, many of them are keenly interested in trades. We're fortunate because on our campus there, the Six Nations uh, Brantford campus, we do have trades programming. So the students are able to start trades courses right away. The third pathway, like certainly the arts is another one that we're developing. We have some very talented artists, not just visual artists, but performing artists. Our students last year, they were involved in what was called outside looking in. It's a dance theater organization that is, it's a not-for-profit and it works within First Nations students from across the country. They work with the students to do dancing. For the first year, last year, we had students sign up and they went through the program and um, ended up performing on June 21st at the Meridian Center in Toronto. And it was just an absolutely amazing, fabulous show. Those are, those are the pathways that are currently being developed. And then the other piece, and I would say the bigger, broader thing that we're preparing our students for, for the future is to know that they can continue to learn, to love to learn. And that's I think that's the best way we can prepare them is give them a positive learning experience, help them build their personal self-confidence, their, their own skills for learning, and their own skills for communicating and getting along with other people. And in that way, they're really gonna be prepared for the future. I'll stop there. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot of very interesting and great things that I wish I had experienced in school. Um, and so my final question is just kind of like, how do you make sure that you're continuing to develop along with you know, technology and the society and cultural changes? Well, that's, that happens at many different levels. Like I know um, with our with our staff, our teaching staff, I mean, they're, they stay current, always learning. They themselves are lifelong learners. They're modeling it for the students. In terms of societal changes, I know that the students are very active in being aware of and discussing social issues and sometimes talking about, you know, their role in that. Um, and then in terms of the cultural changes, I'm not really sure what that means, but we do have our um, our knowledge carriers engaged with the with the school, you know. In addition to our our teachers from the community who themselves are knowledge carriers and language speakers, you know, culture does evolve a bit over time, but there are some foundational pieces that do not change. So it's very much just a part of the school. You know, if you come there in the morning, we open with a Thanksgiving address, which is um, in the language, and the students understand it, and the students can actually do it on their own now. Guests come, they greet them in the language, and it's in the contemporary situation now. Yeah, so we're pretty, pretty proud of the kids.
When preparing for this episode and reading through your script for the past, Nathan, um, one of the things that really stuck in my head was how many students each teacher had. Like, I was, <laughs> I was going to say that it, I found it really interesting too the the difference in pay that they received back then compared to what they would receive now. Yeah, yeah, teaching was really like uh, I don't know it wasn't it wasn't a really uh, super I guess professional in in the sense that it is now it's it is a like a, a real profession right and a lot of them too were like um, were were women often and women were historically underpaid for doing all that work right um, so they weren't given due credit as well and then the women if they got married they couldn't be a teacher anymore at certain times right it's like oh well I I'm married now so I lose my job as a result of it I know that's something I always have to think about when I'm reading various um books like even like Jane Austen Charlotte Bronte and like you know the governess you know she can be a governess but as soon as she gets married it's like her job is in the home and I guess it was that's the time period that we're talking about I was going to say it, uh, it kind of brought back memories about the Six Nations Polytech and you speaking about that, right? It's, it's very, it's very different, very different style of education. Well, I was going to say, speaking of the Polytechnic School, I, I was really interested in the fact that they do the, the college and the high school together. So all at the same time. And I think that would have been such a like it would have been so good for so many youth that I know if they would have had that opportunity. I didn't even know about the uh, high school component out there until I listened to the interview and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Uh, it's really smart that they're doing it. And the way that they're, that they instruct as well, right? In the past, it was always uh, the method is what we call the rote method of like, I tell you and you tell me exactly what I told you back and you get a check mark, right? Whereas now uh, that that's not at all how how education works. Uh, you know, the students learn from themselves; they learn from their peers, and the way that they're approaching it as well, it's much more holistic sounding by the sounds of it, right? They're trying to build actual competent skills in people. I think the other thing that I kind of understood from speaking with Rebecca Jamison is that really trying to show the relevance of the learning to their lives. And I think especially for Six Nations Polytechnique, bringing in um, Indigenous culture and Indigenous teachings into that, because I'm thinking about my own education in the public school system. And there's so little that I learned about Indigenous history in Canada or even settler history and the real settler history in Canada. Something else interesting that I thought that probably a lot of people don't know is how she had said that they, that they welcome others to attend that school as well. So they want to welcome everyone that they share the land with. And I think that a lot of people will had, would have no idea that they would have the opportunity to attend that school. And that they're full, yeah. right? All the time, which is, that, that's a great success to have. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I just want to highlight because she talks about how, you know, we have to all build relationships with each other because we're all sharing this land. And I think that's great that they can bring that into the school as well. The thing I was thinking about from Mandy's interview as well was how long it takes to actually build a school and to make it happen. Like 
these people have been working for decades in order to get a school built. And it's not like every day that you build a school, um, you know, if there was uh, an existing school and a new modern facility needs to get built, it's, it's no question. But if you're building and expanding and adding an additional school, it takes a long time to make it happen. And uh, I don't think that a lot of people are very appreciative of people like Barb who basically devoted like 20 years of their life to making this thing happen. I know it's incredible the amount of time that they've been advocating for the school and for the community center that they need for over there and and that there's such a big area like a big neighborhood over there and they don't have they don't have a community center or anything of that and of course getting the new library too is pretty awesome. Yeah we're pretty excited about that having a another branch you know just adding to the services we can bring to the community. I know from um, talking with people that uh, Brantford has the highest population per number of libraries that, that we have. So bringing a new service to that community, hopefully will help deliver better things for the community as well. And there's lots of great educational opportunities, not only at the library, but like they, uh, Barb was talking about with the butterfly project, with the gardens out there, getting your community hours through the uh, neighborhood associations. Lots of really uh, good things. And West Brant has always been like this. They've always been left out. They've always had, it's like a, a small little chunk. It's like a neighborhood annexed onto the other, uh, the other side of the river. And so they've always really struggled with, with services and things. So it's with all the building that's gone out there, it's good to see that some can, community infrastructure is also happening out there. So I'm not super familiar with like how Brantford has expanded. Is West Brant kind of a newer neighborhood that's developed more in the last two decades or so? They have the old West Brant and then they also have like the new Shellard area. So like there was um, like if you're talking like early, early Brantford, like there it was uh Colburn Street which was then called Oxford Street and Mount Pleasant and that was it for West Brant so it was very very small and tiny and then later around like uh just after World War One I, I want to say it kind of starts expanding out towards where Shellard's Lane is kind of now but then yeah most of the development of there is is all relatively new within the last 20 30 years I'd say that original, that entire area, that big hill there was called Strawberry Hill. And uh, my earth science geology had a, it's a cane, which is like a sand deposit from like a river exiting a glacier, just dumps a big pile of sand. I had heard of Strawberry Hill, but I didn't know that was it there. And there were strawberry bushes all over there. That's why it's called Strawberry Hill. Wild strawberries? Yeah, wild strawberries indigenous plant i'm just full of uh different factoids tonight (laughs) (laughs) we can always count on you nathan (laughs) thanks nathan that was my one new thing that i learned today you know being an advocate for lifelong learning i'm always looking for something else to learn and clearly there's lots of opportunities in brantford for learning that's it for episode one of our second season of for the love of brantford If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, 
go to our website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB to fill out our feedback form. Any and all suggestions are always welcome. Thank you to Barb Walsworth for sharing Shellard Neighborhood Association's efforts behind the Southwest Community Center. And thank you to Rebecca Jamison for taking the time to talk about the STEAM Academy at Six Nations Polytechnic. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Brantford. You can find all the episodes at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB, including the show notes where we list references, share images, and provide resources to continue your exploration of Brantford. We are your hosts, Mandy Samuel, Nathan Etherington, and Zila Ozels. This is a podcast in partnership with the Eagle Place Community Association, the Brant Historical Society, and the Brantford Public Library.